Let's turn now to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we are continuing our studies in, in the book of Genesis, and we're going to pick up at uh, uh, Genesis 2 verse 4 and read to the end of the chapter. <coughs> And you'll notice at verse 4 there's a, a change of uh, tone, if you like, but I'll, I'll say more about that in a moment. Verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth and they were, when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the, he- the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and in the east, and there, there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant uh, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die." Then the Lord God said, "Is it not good that the man should be alone? It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him." So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock, all the livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. So, in chapter 1, 
We looked at the six days of creation, which were then followed by the seventh day of rest, uh, where God rested from all the creating that he had done. And then we find in verse uh, verse 4 of chapter 2, this statement, These are the generations of... And I point that out because there are several statements like this all the way through the book of Genesis. um, And they mark, as it were, a new section uh, of the story of Genesis. Now sometimes the section has simply the start of a genealogy. But sometimes it introduces a new story, a narrative. And this is what we have here. We have a, a new narrative, a new story. And... As it were, the Bible zooms in, if you like, on the creation of man. It looks at more detail uh, of some of the big picture issues that we have seen in the first six days. So Genesis 1 was was a big picture uh, account of the, the creation. Um, but chapter 2, it gets much more personal. And uh, we see... Uh, God moving from creating out of nothing in chapter 1 to now um, making and forming out of stuff that he has already made in addition to adding life to that which he has made. There is a sense in which God is, is not so much creating here but he is, he is now begetting, uh, he is bringing to life and man is formed, and mankind is put uh, into the world that has been made. I also want you to notice another thing. You may have noticed as we read through this, um, that this passage, this chapter, and into chapter 3, God is referred to differently than he was in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, it was simply God, uh, Elohim, uh, the Hebrew words, but now he is referred to as the Lord God. You'll notice that the Lord God, the Lord has capital letters, and that's always a signal that uh, uh, Yahweh is the name that is being used. So not only is he God, but he is Yahweh Elohim, uh, and that's his name. So Elohim is, a, if you like, a, a class of being, God, but Yahweh is his name. And uh, may, we may well ask, well, why the change at this point? Why the, that detail? Uh, why is that detail added in? But the detail, these details are significant. Uh, remember, it's Moses that is writing. Why does Mo- Moses write Yahweh at this point? In fact, where does Moses discover the name Yahweh? Well, you have to look further ahead into the account of the Exodus. And you come to chapter 3, verse 14 of Exodus, and you find that uh, there's Moses. He's out in the wilderness tending, for, tending to his sheep. And uh, he sees this amazing sight off to the left, and he, he see, it's a bush that seems to be burning, but it's not consumed. And he goes over to it, and he finds that out of the bush, uh, a voice speaks to him. And gives him a commission, tells him, you need to go back to Israel, uh, back to Egypt, because you're going to lead my people out of slavery into the promised land. And Moses, not surprisingly, says, well, well, well who shall I say sent me? And God says, Yahweh, I am that I am. The infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. That's what Yahweh means. It means I am. The infinite, eternal unchangeable God and what Moses was doing, uh, God was doing with Moses was, he was letting Moses know 
that this is a personal God. This is a God who wants to be known by his people. Indeed, the whole of Exodus is, is about that, that desire of God to, to be known by his people. One of the reasons that he saves his people out of slavery is because he wants to be known by them. But that's another story. But it's an important uh, feature that we need to remember as we look at chapter 2 of Genesis. That this God who has made man is also the God who desires to be known by those whom he has made. And so when we read this, we should be saying to ourselves, this is the God who wants to relate to his people that he has made. And to whom he is going to bind himself with promises that he is making throughout history. And that will unfold as time goes by. So this God is no impersonal force who is essentially non-interacting and maybe even absent. This God who has made us is not distant and somewhere else. This is a God of the Bible who wants to be and can be known. And it's important that we know this when we look at the creation of man. Because this man is made to be in relationship to God. And isn't it true that today all our problems as human beings stem from the fact that we have tried to throw this off. What's man's biggest problem today? What's mankind's biggest problem? Is it COVID? Is it race relations? Is it the Middle East? Is it global warming? Is it any of these things? That's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that human beings continually want to run away from this God who wants to be known. We're running ahead of ourselves and we'll come back to that in the chapters to come. But here in chapter 2, this relationship is established as man is begotten. And the story of chapter 2 follows a kind of classic um, uh, storytelling pattern. First of all, there's a a setting, a picture, an idyllic picture of uh, beauty and perfection. And then there's something of a dilemma. Something's not quite right. Uh, God, in verse 18, says, It is not good that man should be alone. And then we find that there is a solution to that problem. And that's what I want to work through with you this morning. First of all, the setting. And uh, we find here that this picture starts with a barren wasteland. Uh, verse 5, there was no bush of the field as yet in the land. No small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Uh, and then it's followed by... Uh, and you, you notice the details here. There's no rain either at this point. So this is very early in the, in the six days of creation. This is very early. There's no rain yet. Uh, and the, the ground is watered by a mist that uh, is, is enveloping the earth. And then in verse 7 we have the creation of man. And then in verses 8 and 9 we have this planting of a garden that is made. And uh, you may, if you're paying attention, you've been paying attention, you may have noticed uh, 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 the, the, the order of things is slightly different in chapter 2 compared to chapter 1. Uh, 
here it's uh, the, the order is this uh, a watery wilderness and then man is made and then vegetation appears but then in, but in chapter one it's a watery waste uh, and then vegetation and then man appears so it reverses the order but I just want to make a couple of points here. Firstly, just remember that the viewpoint of this of chapter 2 is different from chapter 1. That man is now the pivot. Previously he was the climax, but now he's the pivot of everything. And when you change perspective, uh, things may surprise us and even confuse us. And so we need a bit of care in examining uh, the text here. But what God is describing is actually the uh, establishment of... Uh, a garden that comes up in the second thing I want to say about this that in verse 5 Moses mentions a field there was no bush of the field and the concept of a field only makes sense when in talking about cultivated plants. So I believe that what Moses is highlighting here is the need for a cultivator. So that's the focus at this point in the story. He's highlighting that there needs to be a man to cultivate this waste. And there may well have been wild vegetation, but Moses notes at this point that there needs to be a man to cultivate a garden. So the narrative moves on to the creation of mankind himself in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now notice here, there are, there are, difference, there are similarities with other creatures and there are differences. The similarity is that, of course, both are formed out of the ground. You see that there in verse 7? And if you look ahead to verse 19, So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. So it's no surprise then that as we look around our universe today, there is similarity of design. That's no surprise. We, we have a similar structure to many animals, many mammals. Uh, look very similar to, uh, to us structurally. We have all the same, seem to have many of the same parts. Um, same kinds of parts. And uh, for many of us, we, we eat the same kinds of foods as many, as many animals. There is a sense in which we are very close to animals. Yet there is a fundamental difference. God breathed life into man so that he became a living being, a soul, a nephesh. That's why he's, he's behind that word, a living creature. This is what marks mankind off from the rest of all the creatures. So we can never simply say that man is just another animal. God has put something in us that animals do not have. A soul. A soul is made in the image of God. And is able to obey the explicit word commands of God. So we're similar, yet we're different. We're crowned with a glory. The glory of God as we bear the image of God. And then Moses tells us how he made the garden. And notice a couple of things. It has a, a real physical location. Uh, 
is in the east, east of where Moses' readers would be. It's defined by rivers in verses 10 to 14. Two of them are difficult to identify, uh, Pishon and Gihon, but Tigris and Euphrates are well known. If you know your geography of Iraq, you'll know uh, that place. Uh, the Tigris and Euphrates passed through Iraq. So this is not intended to be a mythical place. It is actually a real place. And note how it also has is a garden that's where man has all that he could possibly need. The word Eden means delight. It's a delightful place. The Greeks translate Eden as paradesos, paradise. It's good to look at, good to eat from, good to live on. It's the good life to live in the Garden of Eden. And it's into this ideal setting then that man is put. But notice that it's not, it's not a cushy number. He's not to lounge around and just enjoy the sunshine. But he's to work it and he's to keep it. Uh, he's to work it, reminding us that work is, is not an evil that we have to put up with. That actually work is fundamentally good. That it's planned by God that he should cultivate his surroundings. To learn about the garden. And to think about how to get the most out of it. And then he has to keep it. He has to look after it. Tend it. Care for it. Protect it. Guard it. There's only one restriction. And you saw that there in verse 17. But the tree of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you shall eat of it. You shall surely die. I just note this in passing. We'll come back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil next, next time. When we come into chapter 3. But that's the wonderful, beautiful setting into which mankind has been placed. Let me move on now to the problem. And the problem is this, that he is alone. And God says in verse 18, It is not good that the man should be alone. And we see here that Adam is given the task of naming the animals. The animals, as it were, are brought to Adam by God. And uh, he is given a name. And uh, is he, Are these animals suitable as helpers for Adam? Uh, it's interesting that as a, as a former scientist, that's the, the first instance of a scientific activity. Uh, the classification and naming of animals, a very important part of uh, scientific work. But of course, none of these animals is actually what he needs. You can just imagine... You know, the giraffe being brought up to Adam and Adam's shaking his head and saying, hmm, not really, it's not going to help me very much. Or a rabbit's coming to him and saying, the rabbit's not that much use <laughs> in cultivating this land. Or the lion, he's a bit lazy over there. And it's not, it's not entirely clear what it is that he needs. At this point, probably Adam doesn't know it himself what he needs. But there is something missing and that the animals just don't seem to fit. They're not compatible as helpers. And I think this problem highlights for us an issue in our modern day. We live in a day when 
rampant uh, individualism is the watchword. Uh, where people say, I need to be free to be me. What matters is what I really want. And no one, no one needs to care about anyone else. But this passage tells us something very important. That people are not made to be alone. We, we live in a society, don't we, where increasing numbers of people live alone. A society where relationships are splitting apart. And the reason there's a, a booming housing market, did you know? Because so many single people looking for houses. We know that we're not made for this. We know that our lives are inadequate if we are, live in glorious isolation. We know this is wrong. And so God, at this point, steps in with a solution. And at this point, God makes a woman. Now we don't need to worry about the details of how God made the woman. He can do it exactly as is described here. If he can make the world in six days by the power of his word, then of course he can make a woman out of the rib of a man. He can do that. And he is, he is like a surgeon, isn't he? He puts Adam to sleep. He is then conducts his surgery and takes a rib. And then from that he, he makes Eve. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? And when Adam wakes up, God brings the woman to Adam. And do you see Adam's reaction? Remember all the reactions he, to his to all the animals. He was somewhat gloomy, perhaps, and saying these are not these don't fit. But now he looks at this woman, and he says, "At last, <laughs> at last!" All oh, the relief that comes over him, all oh, the all oh, the joy that he he experiences as he looks over and he sees this woman coming towards him and uh, he may look at, look at her and he's, he says what's this coming towards me I've never seen anyone like this anything like this before but, but she's like me but she's different <laughs> what, a, what a reaction you can, can imagine the reaction I was trying to think What kind of reaction would he have? I, I, I turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 7. And I know that... Let me just read a bit of this to you. And just imagine Adam seeing Eve. And I know some of the imagery is not imagery that we would use today. The metaphors. And you'll see why in a minute. But just stick with me here. Listen. Listen to this, the Song of Solomon. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in, in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon that looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. You imagine Adam 
suddenly feeling he is held captive by the beauty that he looks looks upon as he sees Eve coming towards him. And I have no doubt there is great emotion as he says, at last, at last. And God has so fitted these two together that as soon as they met an unbreakable form, the bond formed between them. And they would want to spend time together, they would want to work together, they'd want to laugh together, they'd want to be intimate together. And this is the helper that Adam needs suitable to help in his God-given task. Now today, some, some, to some, that sounds like an unpalatable message, especially maybe if you have a, uh, adopted a feminist viewpoint. And you might say to yourself, doesn't that make women sound inferior to men? That this woman is a helper to the man. All I can say to that is... Did you know that nearly half the times that the Bible uses the description helper, it is referring to God helping sinful, rebellious people? Does that make God inferior to sinful, rebellious people? Absolutely not. The name helper doesn't confer inferiority or superiority. Men and women are made equal before God in terms of status, but complementary in terms of role and relationship. Not equal in terms of role, but like pieces of a jigsaw, they fit together perfectly. And friends, I need to say to you today that if we ditch the idea that men and women are made for each other and simply let individualism get hold of us, and accept the idea that individuals are fundamentally alone and all that distinguishes between people is their subjective inner feelings about who they are and what they are then what happens is that such isolated people find that it's not, it's not all it's cracked up to be and in fact something very strange begins to happen That it's not enough for me, myself, to be content with my inner feelings about myself and who I am. But I need other people to recognize me according to my feelings of personal identity. And so I begin to put demands on other people to recognize me for what and who I am. I think I am. And that's where we are in our society today. As people look inwards and demand that others look inwards with me, you have the fragmentation of society into groupings according to very celebrated categories of identity. This is what's, uh, what's called intersectionalism, far from being bringing peace and contentment, only produces friction and conflict. As the battle for recognition is pursued socially, politically, and now increasingly legally. This is a far cry from the picture painted in the pristine world that God had made. 
of man and woman being made in the image of God, made for relationship with God, and working together in the mission that God has given to the man and that the woman now shares in. A picture of harmony and unity and purpose under God. Well, as we come to the close, Moses has a therefore at the end of the chapter. Verse 24, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Because all of this story, the creation of man, the planting of the garden, the discovering of the need of, uh, of a helper for man, all of this is leading to this, to this conclusion that Moses wants us to see. It's the reason behind marriage in the present day. And Moses says this, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And it's this purpose in marriage that is there by the grace of God that we are called, and is there for us to, uh, for, that Moses gives us to call us to, to walk in the path of Adam and Eve, that such marriage should meet the needs of men and women for companionship, partnership, intimacy, and family. Now we live in a fallen world, not like the pristine world that God had made. And we can see in it that uh, many marriages fail. And there is a general belief today that this picture that is painted of marriage through Adam and Eve is unrealistic. Surely to obey God this way is unrealistic, people will say. But if you're in that category, I urge you to reconsider. You see, God has not given up on this marriage. Actually, the, the idea of marriage throughout the Bible is all the way through the Bible because God created it to teach us about His salvation through Jesus Christ and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, God, Yahweh, wants relationship with His people. And so He describes it all the way through the Bible as like a marriage, it's like a covenanted relationship. And you see it in the prophets, where God is speaking to his people, and he speaks to, to his people like a lover, and his bride-to-be. Jeremiah 2.2, 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me. This is the people of Israel. And then we see it in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us. And so our marriages for Christians are a continual reminder of the gracious covenant of God. And one of the things that you expect to see in couples who have become Christians is a glorious transformation of marriage where it becomes a space, a place where the grace of God prevails where children begin to breathe the atmosphere of grace in their lives. Now we're not saying that the solution to society's problems is if only people will get married. Marriage is not our saviour. Jesus Christ is our saviour. But we see in marriage testimony to the love of a saviour. 
everything changes when we have him in our lives. So have Jesus Christ enter into that covenant relationship. As it were, join a marriage. Commit to him and see how everything else is richly blessed, including your marriages to your husband or your wife. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, your words. Thank you for the wonderful picture that you've painted for us of human relationships. We pray you'd richly bless us. And our marriages would be a testimony to the love of God in Jesus Christ for his people. So bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.